From New York, this is Democracy Now! We must keep the horrors of Hiroshima in view of all times, recognizing there is only one solution to the nuclear threat, not to have nuclear weapons As UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns about the growing risk of nuclear war, we look at efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal. After 16 months of negotiations, a final text has been sent to Washington and Tehran. We'll get the latest. Plus, we look at the growing housing crisis in the United States as rents soar and cities crack down on the unhoused. For us, safety is defined by housing. Also, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott is sending busloads of asylum seekers to so-called liberal cities like New York and Washington, D.C. We'll speak with the head of the New York Immigration Coalition. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukraine's military says its special forces were behind a blast at a Russian air base in Crimea Tuesday that destroyed nine Russian warplanes. If confirmed, it would be Ukraine's most successful attack on Russian air power since the start of the war in February. Elsewhere, Ukraine's military says at least 13 people were killed and 10 others wounded after Russian forces has fired rockets from the site of a captured nuclear power plant. Ukraine says Russia is using the threat of a nuclear catastrophe at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant as a deterrent to prevent counterattacks by Ukrainian forces. With six nuclear reactors, Zaporizhia is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin traveled to Latvia Wednesday, where he pledged more U.S. military support to the former Soviet Republic and NATO member. After meeting Austin, Latvia's Minister of Defense said his country is a litmus test for Russia's imperial ambitions beyond Ukraine. He said Latvia wants more military training from the United States and more heavy weaponry. Our priorities is very clear. It's a rocket artillery. We can see it's used very well in uh, defending Ukrainian sovereignty and freedom. It is air defense and, of course, coastal defense, because we have a quite uh, long uh, coastal uh, territory. So that, that, these are our priorities, and we are looking forward for, for cooperation with the United States. China's military said Wednesday it's wrapped up large-scale military war games around Taiwan, but warned it would organize regular patrols around the island, which Beijing considers part of China's sovereign territory. This comes after China launched its largest-ever live-fire drills near Taiwan, following a visit by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to the island last week. Meanwhile, a top Chinese diplomat is blaming the United States for the war in Ukraine, calling the U.S. the, quote, initiator and main instigator of the Ukrainian crisis, unquote. China's ambassador to Russia made the remarks in an interview with the Russian TASS news agency published Wednesday, in which he said the main goal of the U.S. is to, quote, exhaust and crush Russia with a protracted war and the cudgel of sanctions, unquote. 
Here in New York, former President Trump invict, invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination over 440 times Wednesday as he refused to answer questions posed by New York Attorney General Letitia James and her legal team. Trump was being deposed as part of James' civil investigation into whether the Trump Organization inflated the values of its properties to obtain loans and then reduced them to evade taxes. Trump previously said only guilty people invoke the Fifth. This is Trump speaking at a 2016 campaign rally in Iowa. Like you see on the mob, right? You see the mob takes the Fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? In Washington state, Republican Congress member Jamie Herrera Butler has conceded her reelection bid after narrowly losing to Joe Kent in the August 2nd primary. Kent's a retired Army Special Forces officer who won Donald Trump's endorsement after he repeated false claims about the 2020 election. Herrera Butler was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump over the January 6th insurrection. She's the third Republican in that group to lose a pro-Trump primary to a pro-Trump primary challenger. The Justice Department has charged an Iranian citizen with plotting to murder President Trump's former national security adviser, John Bolton. Federal prosecutors said Wednesday that Sharam Persafi offered to pay a hitman $300,000 last November to assassinate Bolton in Washington, D.C. or Maryland. The man Persafi allegedly tried to hire was, in fact, an FBI informant. Federal agents say Persafi is a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, who sought revenge for the Trump administration's assassination of a top Iranian commander in Baghdad in January 2020. This is Assistant Attorney General Matt Olson. This assassination plot was undertaken in apparent retaliation for the January 2020 killing of Qasem Soleimani. We face a rising threat from authoritarian regimes who seek to reach beyond their own borders to commit acts of repression, including inside the United States. This is an especially appalling example of the government of Iran perpetrating egregious acts of transnational violence in violation of U.S. laws and our national sovereignty. This comes amid signs of progress in diplomatic efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal, which then-President Trump withdrew the U.S. from in 2018. After headlines, we'll speak with Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who's been following the negotiations closely. In Sierra Leone, protests over the rising cost of living have turned violent, leading to the deaths of at least six police officers, an unknown number of protesters in the capital, Freetown. Demonstrators called for the removal of President Julius Mada Bio, chanting, Bio must go. Officials have announced a nationwide curfew, and Sierra Leone is now under a near-total Internet shutdown. In Kenya, citizens are still waiting for the results of a close presidential race two days after national elections. So far, tallies show a razor-thin contest between the veteran opposition leader, El Odinga, and Deputy President William Ruto. Media outlets have tallied up conflicting results, which some worry could inflame claims of vote-rigging in Kenya, which has a history of elections leading to violence. Civil rights attorney and U.S. citizen Asim Ghafoor who has been imprisoned in the United Arab Emirates since mid-July, is expected to be released after his sentence was overturned by an Emirati court Wednesday, reversing a punishment that raised charges he was being targeted for political reasons. Ghafoor had previously worked as a lawyer for Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist whose 2018 murder was ordered by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He was detained at a Dubai airport mid-July and sentenced to three years in prison on charges of money laundering and 
and tax evasion. Back in the United States, the Labor Department reports the U.S. inflation rate was largely flat in July, following price increases that hit a 40-year high earlier this year. This follows last Friday's employment report, which showed the U.S. economy added 528,000 jobs in July, a far higher pace than most economists had predicted. Here in New York City, the fast food chain Chipotle has agreed to pay a potential $20 million as part of a settlement over violations of worker protection laws. The city contended Chipotle violated scheduling and sick leave laws for 13,000 workers over the course of four years. It's the largest settlement of its kind in New York City's history. And President Biden has signed a bill to expand health care and disability benefits to some three and a half million former U.S. service members poisoned by toxic burn pits on U.S. military bases in Iraq and Afghanistan. Biden welcomed the new law at a White House signing ceremony Wednesday. Toxic smoke thick with poison spreading through the air and into the lungs of our troops. When they came home, many of the fittest and best warriors that we sent to war were not the same. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, cancer. My son Bo was one of them. President Biden believes toxic burn pits may have contributed to the 2015 death of his son, Bo Biden, who served in Iraq and was then diagnosed with brain cancer. The new law appropriates about $40 billion annually to alleviate veterans suffering, but only for U.S. victims to see our coverage of the PACT Act and how it will not benefit Iraqis and Afghans harmed by these burn pits. Visit our website, Democracy Now! Org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Over the past week, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has repeatedly warned of the growing risk of nuclear war. He spoke of the issue during a trip to Hiroshima, Japan, to mark the 77th anniversary of the U.S. atomic bombing of the city. We must keep the horrors of Hiroshima in view of all times, recognizing there is only one solution to the nuclear threat, not to have nuclear weapons at all. The U.N. Secretary General's comments came as tension keeps rising between three nuclear states, the United States, Russia and China. But there has been some possible hopeful news on the nuclear front. It appears progress has been made to revive the Iran nuclear deal, which appeared all but dead a few months ago. On Monday, the foreign affairs chief of the European Union, Joseph Borrell, announced a final text has been reached after 16 months of negotiations. Borrell tweeted, quote, what can be negotiated has been negotiated. It's now in a final text. However, behind every technical issue and every paragraph lies a political decision that needs to be taken in the capitals. He went on to write, if these answers are positive, we can sign this deal, unquote. The future of the deal now rests with political leaders in Tehran and Washington. The Iran nuclear deal was first signed in 2015, but President Trump unilaterally withdrew the United States in 2018. When President Biden took office, he ignored calls to rejoin the deal via executive order. Instead, he kept sanctions on Iran in place while the deal was renegotiated. This all comes as tensions remain high between the United 
United States and Iran. On Wednesday, the Justice Department charged a member of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps with plotting to assassinate Trump's former national security adviser John Bolton as retaliation for the U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the top commander of the Revolutionary Guards. We go right now to Trita Parsi, the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who's been following the Iran nuclear negotiations closely. He recently wrote an article for MSNBC headline, Biden already has two foreign crises on his hands. It's not too late for him to avoid a third. Trita Parsi is also author of several books, including Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Trita, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can start off by explaining what this text is that has been sent out um, to Tehran and Washington. So, as you mentioned, negotiations have been taking place for uh, 16 months. And now, finally, there seems to be an agreement on all of the key issues uh, pertaining to the nuclear issue itself. We saw in the last couple of months that there were several Iranian demands that the U.S. refused to uh, agree to, such as taking the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, off of the U.S.'s terrorist list. This is a decision that Trump had made uh, just a few years ago. We had put the IRGC on the terrorist list specifically to make it as difficult as possible for a future administration to return to the JCPOA. Uh, the Iranians appear to have backed down from that demand. Moreover, the Iranians wanted to have assurances that the United States would stick to the deal this time around, that there wouldn't be another American exit from the deal once the Biden administration had left office. That, too, appears to have uh, been something that the Iranians at least have softened their position on. And this is then open up for this potential breakthrough. There is, however, one remaining issue that is not directly um, addressed in the text, cannot be directly addressed in the text, but is nevertheless very relevant, which is that the IEA has now reopened an investigation into Iran's nuclear past. That invest investigation was taking place before as well, when the original JCPOA was uh, negotiated. But then there was a parallel agreement with the IEA, which answered the questions of the agency, and in return, the IEA uh, um, uh, decided that their uh, question, that it was satisfactory to them, and as a result, the matter was closed. This was very critical to the Iranians because they didn't want to have a JCPOA and then at the same time having an investigation in their past that once again could bring onto Iran sanctions and, and a, um, a referral to U.S. Security Council. This time around, however, the Iranians want to deal to be the, the matter to be completely closed so that it cannot be reopened again. And that appears to be an impossibility. And it will be particularly difficult for the IEA to give any type of assessment on this issue unless the Iranians cooperate with the IEA and answer their questions. This is, however, in my view, resolvable. It was resolved once before. It should be able to be resolved again, but it may take a few more weeks before a final agreement is made. So the JCPOA, which stands for Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, involves how many countries? It originally involved the United States, China, Russia, France, the UK, Germany, and Iran, seven different countries. It was then adopted by the UN Security Council at a vote of 15 to 0. There were only three countries worldwide that actually expressed opposition to the agreement, and that was Saudi Arabia, 
the UAE and Israel. And at this point, it appears even the Saudis and the Emiratis have come around to the idea that it's actually better to have the deal than not to have it. And inside of the Israeli uh, security establishment, even though the official line of the Israeli government still is to oppose the deal, uh, we have had numerous Israeli, senior Israeli officials coming out and declaring that the Trump exit from the JCPA, which came after massive pressure from the Netanyahu government, was a major mistake and it actually jeopardized Israel's security as well. So talk about how this happened right now. I mean, in the midst of Russia's war on Ukraine and NATO versus Russia, um, with the heightening tensions, as we pointed out, between the United States and China over Taiwan, how did this happen now? Uh, it's quite fascinating, because if we take a look at it back in 2015, the relations between the United States and China, the United States and Russia were quite different as they are today. There was a Ukraine crisis in 2014 as well, but it actually did not impact the negotiations. They were kept very professional and compartmentalized. This time around, there's been a significant amount of nervousness. Nervousness that the Russians would seek to sabotage the deal. They did throw uh, a massive problem into uh, the negotiations a couple of months ago. And, and one measure that has been made is to essentially negotiate this first with the Iranians, and then once there is some form of an agreement, put this in front of the Russians in order to minimize the risk of them uh, sabotaging it and also making clear that if there is a problem that is coming from Moscow, not from the other parties. Still, there seems to be enough common interest between these countries that there should be some form of agreement on this matter. The Iranians themselves have been pressing these other countries as well not to sabotage it. Uh, but we Despite this progress that has been made in the last couple of days, and it has been a surprising degree of progress, we have to remind ourselves we still actually do not have a deal. It's not finished yet. So do you see that being tied to what just happened yesterday, uh, This just the Justice Department charging an Iranian citizen with plotting to um, murder President Trump's former national security adviser, John Bolton? Federal prosecutors saying Wednesday that Sharam Prasafi offered to pay a hitman $300,000 last November to assassinate Bolton in Washington, D.C. or Maryland. The man allegedly tried to hire, in fact, an FBI informant. Informant. They say he's a member of the uh, Iran Revolutionary Guard who sought revenge for the Trump administration's assassination of um, the top Iranian commander Soleimani in Baghdad in January 2020. So we have to remind ourselves that uh, obviously this is in no way, shape or form going to be helpful for the negotiations. But the United States government has known about this throughout this year, and we have still seen these negotiations. So the fact that this has now been made public in this degree, an indictment has taken place, um, uh, at the end of the day is of no surprise to the U.S. government itself that has been negotiating this. Uh, and I think this is because the Biden administration recognizes that at the end of the day, uh, the JCPOA squarely lies in the national interest of the United States, being able to prevent uh, an Iranian path to a bomb, as well as war with Iran, is of significant importance. And as a result, it has been uh, pursued despite uh, uh, this very disturbing information. On the allegations itself, I do have to say earlier on, there were uh, allegations by the Trump administration that the Iranians were seeking to assassinate 
uh, an American ambassador to South Africa in revenge for um, uh, the assassination of Qasem uh, Soleimani. That was a, a, a rather unlikely scenario, not a very credible accusation. It was reported in political and several other places, but it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. These allegations, however, cannot be easily dismissed because Bolton, at the end of the day, has played a key role in the animosity between the United States uh, and Iran for the last 20 years. He's been one of the most ferocious and vocal uh, proponents of war with Iran. So the idea that the Iranians would be targeting him uh, in response uh, in response to the assassination of Soleimani is somewhat plausible. And the indictment itself does show uh, indications that this gentleman was uh, a member of the IRGC. It does not, however, say anything uh, or provide any evidence as to whether we know uh, with greater degree of certainty whether this actually was ordered by the Iranian government or whether it was a rogue operation. That seems to be somewhat unclear when you read the indictment itself. So I wanted to go to the response of John Bolton uh, to this news. Uh, he was speaking on CBS News. The government of Iran is trying to kill Americans on American soil should be the end of any further discussion with Iran on the nuclear program. And I should say that um, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo um, uh, was also apparently targeted in um, in this. A source uh, close to Pompeo told Yahoo News Pompeo is the unnamed second target. Uh, Trita Parsi, if you can respond. Well, whatever happens, Bolton always comes down to the line that we should not negotiate and we should essentially go to war with Iran. I think the Biden administration is doing the right thing and continuing to pursue these negotiations because uh, while obviously any attempt by the Iranians needs to be uh, to assassinate any American on U.S. soil needs to be stopped and punished, it does not mean that the United States is not in need of a nuclear agreement that will prevent an Iranian nuclear weapon and that will prevent a broader war with Iran. So these two things cannot be seen as in competition with each other. The U.S. interest in having this nuclear deal is there regardless of what happened uh, uh, with uh, these attempts to, to kill Bolton or others. Those have to be stopped, but that doesn't mean that the, uh, there needs to be a stop to the diplomacy and a stop to efforts to prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon. So finally, what is the schedule of um, how uh, the signing needs to take place in Tehran and Washington? Well, the Iranians have taken uh, the proposal back to their capital. There seems to be greater divisions there than there is uh, in Washington on this matter right now. The Iranians are very nervous because they feel that they were the ones who were duped last time around. The deal only lasted two years before the U.S. pulled out. And if you remember the debate back then, all of the considerations and efforts and mechanisms that were put in place were there to make sure that the Iranians wouldn't cheat, that they wouldn't be pulling out of the agreement. There was nothing that was made uh, in the eventuality of an American pullout. So the Iranians are very nervous, and politically this is difficult for them because the Raisi government has insisted that it will be able to negotiate a better nuclear deal than that of the Rouhani government. If they don't get some form of a path towards closing uh, this investigation by the IEA, then clearly the deal will not be stronger than the one that the Rouhani government put together. And, and this is a critical reason as to why there is this demand from the Iranian side and why at the end of the day, uh, it will be a very politically costly decision for them to go along with it if there isn't some sort of a pathway towards closing. 
not to close it permanently, because if new information comes out, the IEA should have the right to uh, restart the investigation. But to do exactly the same thing that happened in 2015 should be doable and should be acceptable to the body. Trita Parsi, we want to thank you for being with us. Executive Vice President of Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, author of a number of books, including Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Coming up, the Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott is sending busloads of asylum seekers to so-called liberal cities like New York and Washington. We'll speak with the head of the New York Immigration Coalition. Stay with us. by Gabby Moreno. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Here in New York City, more than 100 asylum seekers arrived on buses from Texas early Wednesday morning at Port Authority, the bus terminal near Times Square. Another bus arrived Sunday with no advance notice from Texas officials. This is a Venezuelan-born migrant named Edwin Enrique Jimenez Guaido. It's been six years already, six years since I left my country, first to Colombia, next to Ecuador, and in February I decided to come here, to the Darien Reserve, Panama, Costa Rica. This comes as Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced he's sending asylum seekers to so-called liberal cities. On Friday, he said he'd chosen New York City to be a designated, quote, drop-off location along with Washington, D.C., as part of his opposition to what he called President Biden's so-called open border policies. People on the buses said they were told to sign a consent waiver. CNN reports the waiver includes a line that absolves Texas officials from liability, quote, arising of or in any way relating to any injuries and damages that may occur during the agreed transport to locations outside of Texas, unquote. At least eight people who got off the buses needed emergency medical attention, according to the New York mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs. On Tuesday, New York City's Immigration Commissioner Manuel Castro and Social Services Commissioner Gary Jenkins addressed a city council hearing on the influx of asylum seekers into at least 11 shelters. What is new now is the systematic diversion of asylum seekers and immigrants to New York City by external forces, including by the disgusting, cruel, and cowardly actions of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. We will be tapping into our nonprofit providers to ensure asylum seekers have access to wraparound services, including legal support, health care, and education.
There are now reports from legal service advocates that some families who could not provide proof of their relationships were separated or had to leave the shelters. Asylum seekers are also being met by a welcoming effort that includes members of the South Bronx Mutual Aid Collective, Legal Services and the New York Immigration Coalition, whose executive director, Murad Awalda, joins us now for more. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Murad. Explain exactly what's happening um, and what's happened at Port Authority. Thank you so much for having me, Amy, on your show today. I've uh, been a huge fan. and. Uh, you know, we're, I wish we were meeting on better terms, but what we're seeing happening right now is Governor Abbott using asylum seekers as political pawns to merely help increase his polling numbers down in Texas. Folks who are seeking asylum at the southern border have a legal right to do so. Um, we have seen people who are traveling upwards of 3,000 miles on foot to get to the southern border then present themselves and seek asylum at the southern border, be treated so horribly by the state of Texas, and then busing them over 2,000 miles away to New York City. Uh, yesterday morning, most folks who showed up, um, many of them were asking why they were sent to New York City. Uh, one man was trying to, you know, urgently wanting to speak to his wife and children, um, who were actually in San Antonio, Texas. So he wanted to go to San Antonio, Texas, after Texas had just dropped them off here in New York City. Um, folks are arriving on the bus, um, you know, sick. They're arriving um, extremely hungry and thirsty. They're not being given food. Um, and at most times without their uh, identity documents. So the, there's a huge effort that's happening right now to welcome them with dignity here in New York City um, and make sure that we are showing uh, not just, uh, you know, Governor Abbott how it should be done, but really seeing each other as humans in this moment. So how do you understand how it's happening? New York City officials are saying some 4,000 asylum seekers and migrants have traveled to New York in recent months, either by choice or because they were sent here by Texas state officials. So how do they decide who do they just shove them on a bus? That's what it seems like, uh, Amy. I think that there's uh, the governor of Texas is definitely misleading, and Texas officials are definitely misleading the asylum seekers. Um, you know, many of the folks who want who came here yesterday morning, who got off of the three buses that showed up, um, were asking, "Well, how do I get to North Carolina now, or how do I get to Wisconsin or Oregon or Louisiana?" Um, folks are being coerced into, uh, you know, signing this waiver to then be. Um, you know, sent up to New York City without any support, without any care. Um, last Friday, uh, we saw one young girl get off the bus who wasn't feeling well. Uh, she received emergency care and turned out she needed insulin because she's diabetic. Uh, on Sunday morning, there was young one young man who came off the bus and needed uh, treatment because he was having chest pain. Um, we're seeing people being put into really inhumane conditions um, not just on the bus, but even before the bus. And then when they get to New York City, we're providing them with care. So I think that the, the bigger piece here is Governor Abbott's uh, lack, for, lack of empathy, lack of compassion, lack of humanity. 
um, and really trying to rile up his base of folks who have historically um, been anti-immigrant. So can you explain what's happening with some immigrants' uh, families who come here? Maybe some don't have proper papers, and they are threatened with being separated. I mean, we saw this, of course, under President Trump, but separated if they want to go into the shelters, and so they are living on the streets so that they don't get separated? So what's happening is, um, just to clarify, a few months ago, um, about two months ago, organizations like the New York Immigration Coalition, like Catholic Charities, started to receive these notices called uh, Notice to Appear. They're immigration hearing notices um, that were addressed to the organizations with an additional name. Um, and after receiving a few of them, we were like, why are we receiving so many of them? And we're not representing these folks. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we started receiving people to our doors um, asking for shelter and care um, as well as services. Um, we provided them with the services as they showed up to the New York Immigration Coalition, but we don't provide housing. Um, so we worked with, uh, you know, we have a services arm that really did connect folks to emergency shelter. But what we are seeing, in, with uh, to answer your question directly, is that when people are released from ICE or from detention or from Border Patrol, um, rarely are they ever given back their identity documents. Um, some folks are lucky enough to get copies of their identity documents given back to them, um, but they are not given their identity documents. And in New York City, uh, the city shelter system needs to wants folks to prove that they are a family unit. Um, so what, what we have witnessed, because folks have come back to us once we've sent them to the intake facility, is that they say, because we don't have our papers, they want my husband, and you know it's a husband, wife, and children, um, they want him to go stay in the, in the men's shelter and me and my kids to stay in uh, the women's shelter, uh, the family shelter. So we haven't heard of folks getting kicked out of the shelter system. I think that we have seen for you know the past two decades at least um, that we've had a housing and homelessness crisis in the city, um, and I think that there were you know ill ill-mannered uh, rationale given at times, saying that you know with the recent increase of asylum seekers in New York City that that is what was putting the shelter system at capacity, and I don't believe that that's true. Um, but the city has a mandate to shelter everyone. Um, and I think that they had a number of missteps uh, in the beginning, but are moving in the right direction um, to stand up emer expanding emergency shelter and creating a welcoming center in this moment. So what are you saying now, uh, finally? Um, what is the New York Immigration Coalition saying to Mayor Adams here in New York, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, and federally to the federal government about what needs to happen? Yeah, absolutely. I think that under the Trump administration, we saw the asylum system completely gutted. Um, and the Biden administration hasn't done very much to restore it. Uh, they just announced the other day without a plan um, what they, how they are going to rescind uh, Remain in Mexico, which was one of Trump and uh, Stephen Miller's tactics to gut our asylum process. So we're excited that they announced that they're going to rescind it, but that only came after the Supreme Court said that they can. Um, so what we would like for the federal government to do in this moment is to ensure that there is proper uh, care given to folks who are entering 
into the U.S., allowing folks into the U.S., as well as uh, making sure that they have the supports that they need um, when they arrive. Um, at the state level, we'd love to, you know, we've been coordinating with uh, Governor Hochul's office and the Port Authority. We'd love to see, you know, the state step up and provide legal services funding um, as well as services funding. Um, and at the city level, you know, we have to, bureaucracy is slow and we need to really make sure we're able to move quickly. Um, and, you know, we we're excited to hear that they announced that they were going to um, open up the Welcome Center last week, but we really need, need to work quicker to ensure uh, that that center gets opened and that we're providing coordinated services and that community-based organizations who are doing this work and organizations who are doing this work without any support are getting the support that they need to welcome and allow folks who are coming and seeking asylum here in New York City uh, to, to not only just survive, but to be able to thrive in our city and our state. Murata Waldo, we want to thank you for being with us, executive director of the New York Immigration Coalition. Coming up, we're going to look at the growing housing crisis in the United States as rents soar and cities crack down on the unhoused. Stay with us. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere Maybe we make a deal Maybe together we can get somewhere Any place is better Starting from zero, got nothing to lose Maybe we'll make something Me, myself, I got nothing to prove You got a fast car I got a plan to get us out of here Been working at the convenience store Managed to save just a little bit of money Won't have to drive too far Just across the border and into the city You and I can both get jobs And finally see what it means to be living Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Housing advocates are calling on the Biden administration to address the soaring cost of rent with the same level of dedication he's shown to reducing gas prices. This comes as a new report shows evictions are spiking as rental protections disappear. A coalition of hundreds of tenant unions and housing activists call the situation a national emergency as rental costs rise at the fastest pace in three decades. This is Ani Thompson, an organizer with Faith in the Valley in Stockton, California, who's in Washington, D.C. this week as a tenant delegate with the Homes Guarantee Campaign. He spoke to Democracy Now! after meeting with Federal Housing Finance Agency Director Sandra Thompson. I uh, experienced my rent going from 1500 to 1700 uh, in one year. And the thing is, is that with paying 1500 that was already high. But to hike it up from 1500 to 1700 I felt like it was ridiculous. When it comes to a 10% rent hike, like it actually, like I said, it does have a big difference or it does mean a big difference for a lot of 
folks in California. Like in my own personal situation, that 10% rent hike meant a $200 difference in my rent. And that within itself meant that I was not able to, you know, fix my car when it needed maintenance um, due to having to forfeit that $200 every month to rent. And then it also meant, you know, getting in a cycle of overdraft fees. I mean, of overdrafting my account and inquiring fees and then paying it off when I got paid. But then because I paid that money to those fees, now I have to overdraft my account again so that I can cover my bills. And then I have the fees again, and then I have to pay it off when I get paid again. And then it's just this vicious cycle that that starts up and it almost seems like it has no end. I think that it's no brainer that rent prices are definitely tied to inflation, right? And that for them to not include it is kind of like disheartening, um, but that this issue, this housing crisis issue is not going to go anywhere and that they cannot continue to ignore it and further or prolonging addressing it is only going to make it worse for American citizens. That's tenant delegate Zani Thompson, part of the Homes Guarantee campaign underway now in Washington, D.C. For now, we stay in D.C. to speak with Tara Ragavir, director of KC Tenants, a grassroots tenant-led organization based in Kansas City. She's also the Homes Guarantee campaign director at People's Action. Tara, welcome back to Democracy Now! Explain why why you're in D.C. and the level of pressure on people who are renting and rents increasing in a way we haven't seen in like 30 years. Thank you so much for having me back, Amy. We're in D.C. because the rent is too damn high. You heard Zani speak to this, but people across the country are being squeezed at the gas pump, at the grocery store. But the biggest expense for most American households is their cost of their housing. It's their rent. And rents are up 6.3 percent in the latest inflation figures. This is the biggest increase in rents in 35 years. Median rent across the country is over $2,000 for the first time ever. And people simply can't afford it. This rent inflation crisis is really sparing no one and no place. So we're in D.C. with tenants like Zani, a delegation of tenants who have been impacted by these rent hikes, to push the president to do everything in his legal authority to regulate the rent now. And can you explain about pandemic protections being rolled back and how that affects people? So the eviction rates are back up to pre-pandemic levels, but really there's no rate of eviction that should be acceptable. We can't celebrate lower than normal rates, and we can't celebrate returning back to normal. What we believe is every eviction is an act of violence. And what the administration did during the pandemic to alleviate the, the risk of eviction or uh, provide some relief to tenants was really a bailout to landlords. There was billions and billions of dollars of federal assistance put out in the form of rental assistance that put the burden on tenants to apply, but they didn't get to keep that check, right? They had to turn that check over to their landlord. The abomination in all of this is that none of that public money came with strings attached, right? None of that actually built in any structural shift of power from landlords to tenants. So today, not only do we see evictions returning back to pre-pandemic levels, we also see a different type of eviction crisis playing out outside of the courtrooms as people simply can't afford their rent. See, when a landlord increases the rent, 
beyond a place where a tenant can afford it, they don't have the choice to just scrape together another $200 and try to make it work. Often that is tantamount to an eviction and people are losing their homes because their rent is increasing or their lease is not getting renewed. And in just a moment, we're going to speak with one of the um, leaders of the movement to um, help the unhoused in Los Angeles and the growing tension there. Uh, but if you can talk about—I mean, we know the rent that are going up in uh, coastal cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles here in New York City. You're from Kansas City. Talk about it all over. In Kansas City, the rent is up 7.5 percent. City Hall defines affordable as $1,200 for a one-bedroom apartment, and that's based on an area median income of $86,000. I don't know a single person in Kansas City who's making $86,000 or who can afford a $1,200 apartment. So people are sent into the cycles that Zani described, where they're paying extra in their rent, and they're having to cut back on other bills like their medication or their groceries. Unlike something like gas— Rent is not an expense in your monthly budget that you can simply choose to cut back on, right? The alternative is homelessness. And to your point, homelessness is being criminalized in states like mine, like Missouri, and all across the country. So people are trapped in a really violent cycle right now where they're either forced to uh, overdraft and cut back on meals and turn off the lights and sacrifice their humanity, or they're forced to, their to the streets where they're criminalized for their poverty. I wanted to turn to um, two tenants, the safeguards to prevent evictions during the pandemic expire. Tenants across the country facing these rent increases of up to, what, 5, 10 percent, in California, 10 percent. These are Los Angeles tenants Juan Garcia's neighbor of over 17 years, Ulysses Del Bosque, describing the burden of rising rents. Estoy, uh, sí, estoy preocupado. Yes, I am worried because they, well, they wanted to raise the rent, but unfortunately, I told them no, no. I did not accept that they raised it, but the other tenants did. They raised it by 10% and the tenants give them the rent. There are going to be more problems because of the evictions that are increasing as a result of rents starting to rise. And there is too much, too much inflation then it is impossible to be able to live quietly with everything, that all the situations that there are, that are happening. Tara Ragavir, talk about the demographics of who's being priced out of their rentals. Disproportionately, the people who are impacted by rent hikes and by the type of rent gouging that we see corporate actors uh, em employing in the rental market are black and brown tenants, are poor and working class tenants. Black women are the people who are the most at risk of eviction during, quote, normal times. And these are accelerated, um, these are accelerated conditions that are also having that disproportionate effect on those same, same communities. Um, you know, there's recent research that tells us that institutional investors, private equity funds, real estate speculators target communities where there's actually higher uh, percentage of black and brown neighborhoods and people who are renting their homes. And then they raise the rent, right? They raise the rent to levels that the people there can't afford and force them into this kind of eviction cycle. Can you talk about the Federal Housing Finance Agency, um, how it can help in fighting against rising rents? That's who you're meeting with in Washington. 
We had a very promising meeting with the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency yesterday, Director Director Sandra Thompson, and we talked to her about the ways that FHFA, in its role as a regulator of Fannie and Freddie, can actually have a massive impact on regulating the rents and protecting tenants. So. As a regulator of Fannie and Freddie, FHFA has a role to play to actually add conditions to any federal financing. I'll give you an example. There's a corporate landlord called Starwood where the CEO on a recent earnings call called inflation the gift that keeps on giving, and they've raked in record profits during the pandemic while they've been hiking rents across the country. Starwood has federally backed mortgages, right? So that's something within FHFA's purview. They could add conditions to the federal financing that many of these institutional investors rely on in order to rein in their rents. We could regulate rent increases, regulate lease renewals. That's all within Sandra Thompson's purview as the director of the FHFA. And Congress, President Biden, what can they do? So Congress is set to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. It doesn't have anything to do with reducing the rent. In our view, the president and his team have been talking about, thinking about gas and many other elements in inflation, and they've really been neglecting rent. This is the elephant in the room. Rent is the largest expense for most American households, and it's a core driver of inflation. So even as the Inflation Reduction Act passes, for it not to include rent is a major red flag. We're calling on the president to do everything in his executive authority, to direct agency-level action, of course, to direct congressional action, and to use the power of the pulpit to call this crisis what it is, which is a national emergency, and to call out those actors in the private market that are actually rent-gouging, using inflation as an excuse, but raising rents beyond the rate of inflation. Tara Raghavir, I want to thank you for being with us, director of KC Tenants, grassroots tenant-led organization in Kansas City, also the Homes Guarantee campaign director at People's Action, speaking to us uh, from Washington, D.C., where they are trying to meet with federal agencies and others to deal with the rising rents. But we end today's show in California, where the Los Angeles City Council voted Tuesday to ban encampments for unhoused people near schools and daycare centers, expanding an anti-homeless ordinance to include some 20 percent of the city. The vote came after a dramatic meeting where two protesters were arrested as they denounced the council's vote. For more, we're joined by one of the people who was there to speak in opposition to the measure, Pete White, founder, executive director of Los Angeles Community Action Network, or L.A. Can. Pete, welcome to Democracy Now! Describe the scene in the city council meeting, and most importantly, describe the scene of what we're talking about, the scope of the problem. Scope of the problem really quickly, and thank you for having us on um, this morning, Amy. The scope of the problem is that Los Angeles does not have currently or never has had a real housing plan to address the needs of poor Angelinos. Uh, it was interesting listening to the last caller uh, here in Los Angeles, 120 people exit houselessness every day in Los Angeles, 50% of whom do it on their own, right? Because it's a matter of rising rents, losing a job. Of that number, 128 people enter houselessness um, 
every day in Los Angeles. And so as you as you can see, as the homelessness crisis gets worse, there is no there is no reprieve at the end because there is not a policy to protect people. What what we continue to see in Los Angeles is the the march towards criminalization. That is the strategy. In Los Angeles, it's an anywhere but here strategy. It's an out of sight, out of mind strategy. It's a funding of the police department to solve a social crisis. What we saw uh, in City Hall, um, not just this meeting, but the meeting before on August 2nd, was the voices of houseless people, the voices of civil rights organizations and tenants organizations saying enough is enough. Um, This new expansion is on the back or on the heels of a revised ordinance 4118, which we consider um, an ordinance or enforcement by a tape measure. And so pre this expansion, LA City Council had already voted that if anyone was near 10 foot of a driveway, they would be in violation of this ordinance. Within 10 foot of an operational building, whatever that means, they would be in violation of this ordinance. Within two feet of uh, a fire hydrant, they would be uh, in violation of this ordinance, right? And so what they've done is to just put a finer point on their intention to criminalize folks out of the city of Los Angeles. Um, The other thing that happened or the other thing that folks have been witnessing is the attempted silencing of voices inside of council chambers. And so for the last three meetings, we've had a council president, Nuri Martinez, who goes through the speaker's cards, removing names that she knows will be in opposition to this ordinance. It's not a new tactic, but a tactic that's that's being used in such a a mean-spirited way is going to warrant a response that says your system that you put in front of us or these devices that you put in front of us that purportedly are here to hear our voices do not work. And tactically, we are going to make sure that the issues are heard by all, by the media and by other Angelinos. And so you won't be able to cast houseless people away in silence. So we're looking at images of that Los Angeles City Council meeting, and there are riot police there. Um, yep. if, and I understand that some, like the, con- the council member you just mentioned, talked about, compared um, those who came to the meeting to January 6th insurrectionists. Pete White, if you could respond. So, so yes, I can definitely respond. Um, And so while that to many is political rhetoric, right, because when you think about that comparison, um, what you're attempting to equivocate our our campaign and our coalition is with white supremacists, right, many with tactical backgrounds who unlawfully breached the halls of um, of the Capitol and attempted to noose and hang um, the vice president of the United States. Right. You're attempting to bring that together with black and brown uh, or a multicultural coalition who enters our city hall through metal detectors, right, who provide and produce our vaccine cards and everything that you require, and then lift our voices in a constitutionally protected manner, right? And so 
we know and we also understand the whisper campaign because it's more about a tactic of distracting, right? The, the strategy is to distract. The tactic is to divide. But there's something even more sinister about that that folks um, are missing. And I, and, and I think we should we should discuss, right? Everyone in those council chambers, uh, once the council member, once the council president talks about this alignment to January uh, 6 is at risk, right? We don't have to look back far. Uh, when we looked at the FBI um, 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 Black Identity Extremist report, when the FBI in 2017 was attempting to equivocate peaceful protests of Black activists with, with the sort of upsurge of white supremacist movement. And so for us, while some say this is just political rhetoric, folks like myself and other black and brown organizers, it does worry us because we don't know if we're going to get a visit from the FBI. We don't know um, sort of the, the ways in which the state will come down on us for simply lifting our voices in a protective manner. And we're very well aware of this whisper campaign, and we want to make clear uh, that there are connections and it is bigger than just their rumor mill. Can you explain what you are calling for in Los Angeles right now? 100 percent. I mean, we're calling for Los Angeles right now, what we've always called for. Um, instead of the criminalization of the houseless community, we are calling for housing preservation. We are calls. We are calling uh, for housing development at area medians that actually impact those on the ground. Like your first caller was, um, what she was saying uh, was absolutely apparent. Is absolutely apparent in Los Angeles. The rent is too high. Right. We are calling for city-owned and government-owned properties to be turned back over uh, to community trust and for those buildings and that land to be converted into housing for houseless people. We are calling for leadership that recognizes houselessness is a byproduct of a failed housing system or a lack of a housing policy and poverty, right? And so we are calling for leadership that can produce a plan and implement. In Los Angeles, it continues to be a vicious cycle. And at the end of the day, police are always called um, to solve the crisis or to remove those who would dare oppose the criminalization of poverty. I will just say this. This is not new. In, 20, in 2010, the LAPD stormed council chambers where myself and 300 other seniors, children and tenants were there for over five hours waiting to testify on a policy that made better tenant protections. After five hours, they attempted to clear the room, police with billy clubs, with riot gear in the same ways that you saw, storm the crowd, beat and tase members. One of my members, a senior citizen, we had have a toe seconds beat. Yes. So this is not new in Los Angeles. And what we're calling for is housing for all, housing that's affordable at the lowest levels 
of affordability. And it'll be very interesting to follow your uh, mayoral race in Los Angeles, where you have the Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass versus the billionaire real estate developer uh, Rick Caruso. Uh, So that is coming up in November. Pete White, founder and executive director of Los Angeles Community Action Network, or L.A. Can. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with uh, Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.